0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 346, Is Jesus Still a Man? Part 2. Back in the fall of 2021, I received some emails from a listener named Corey. At first, I thought I'd save them for a future episode in which I'd answer a bunch of different listener questions, but the more I dug into it, I saw that there are important issues and complex arguments here. And moreover, I realized that potentially millions of people will be interested in these issues. Why? Well, because the Jehovah's Witness sect adopts a similar position to that of my correspondent Corey. I'm not going to interact with their material for now, but maybe I will sometime in a follow-up episode. So our friend Corey writes, I wanted to share some of my conclusions on the topic of Jesus' present state. Is he still a man? Now let me pause right there. If you haven't heard the last episode, you have to go listen to the whole episode and digest it to understand my answer here. If by being a man, you mean having the essence of humanity... And if Jesus has ever had that, being an essence, he must still have it now. And so, given that Jesus has been a man and that humanity is an essence, given that he still exists, then yes, he must still have that essence, so he must still be a man. So, it's not really a question that comes up if you understand this tradition about treating humanity as an essence. But I think our friend Corey is thinking of humanity as just a non-essential condition or state that someone can be in, a state that might be gained and lost without coming into existence or going out of existence. So back to him, he writes, I have heard people like Sir Anthony Buzzard and other Unitarians say that Jesus is still a man in heaven. It's as if he somehow remained human after his resurrection. Another comment resurrection is normally assumed to be consistent with still belonging to the same natural kind that you had before back to him he says scriptures like first timothy 2 5 are appealed to as a proof text that jesus is still a man today it says in the nasb for there is one god and one mediator also between god and mankind the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time Corey continues, is Paul stating categorically that Jesus is still a man now? Or is he identifying the man Jesus Christ who walked the earth as the Son of God and was known by all who met him as a man? Let me comment on that. I think his point is this. Sometimes we refer to a person using a title that's really proper to his status they did not have at the time we're referring to. So I can say, my dad was born in California which is true. But of course, at the time in question, he was not my dad. So his point is, maybe Paul is calling Jesus a man, and he's just kind of speaking loosely because he used to be a man. He was experienced by many people as a man. But of course, nowadays, he's no longer a man. Yeah, I mean, that's possible in principle. But I mean, how likely is it On the face of it, Paul here is presupposing that Jesus is now a man. That's why he calls him literally the Man Christ Jesus, or in Greek, Anthropos Christos Jesus. He's clearly talking about the post-resurrection Christ, who is now serving as a mediator, and he calls him the Man Christ Jesus. On the face of it, that would be confusing if Paul thought he was no longer a man. Still, the phenomenon I said does occur. You could say the king has now been sent into exile, but he's no longer king because he's been dethroned. say the king was born in a certain place but maybe he hadn't become king at that time so yeah in principle paul could be speaking loosely like that but frankly this text seems to fit better my view that jesus is still a man than it fits the view that he's no longer a man corey writes i believe that some have jumped to the conclusion that paul is identifying jesus as a man after his resurrection there are other scriptures that would prove that notion to be incorrect i believe there are several Again, let me pause here. As we heard last time in classical Greek philosophies, and I think traditionally in almost all Christian theologies, humanity is understood to be an essence and not a mere status, or as they say sometimes, an accidental attribute, one which a thing might gain or lose without coming into existence or going out of existence. As an essence, humanity is supposed to be a feature or set of features such that they can be gained only by the thing coming into existence and they can only be lost by the thing going out of existence that is ceasing to exist or being annihilated. Philosophers call these sorts of change generation and annihilation. So generation can cause a person to have humanity annihilation can cause a person to lose it. But during the whole course of their life, their whole career and existence, they have to have humanity, given that they are a member of that natural kind. Now, humanity is traditionally, and I think reasonably, assumed to be an essence. So it's a property or set of properties which are necessary and sufficient for being a member of the natural kind human being. And if we're trying to sort the things that there are in this cosmos naturally and not artificially or arbitrarily, then surely we need this category of human being in our scheme of classification, along with bird, electron, pine tree, carbon atom, etc. If this is right, that humanity is a kind essence, then the only way we can gain the property of being human is to start to exist, and the only way one could lose it would be to be annihilated And no Christian thinks that Jesus Christ has been annihilated. And so, he was human while walking around Galilee. He's human now, given that humanity is an essence. So, I don't think most theologians who think that Jesus is still human are doing that merely by drawing a dubious inference from this text or any text. A lot of it has to do with this assumption that humanity is a natural kind, and so that there is such thing as humanity, the essence, that Jesus must still have. But our friend Corey continues, many who would identify as Unitarians believe that Jesus was raised as an immortal divine spirit being at his resurrection. Many? Hmm. I'll take his word for it. I know that this is the Jehovah's Witness position. Okay, so his position is that nowadays Jesus is not a human being, but is rather an immortal divine spirit, a status which, in our friend Corey's view, implies that he is not human, that he's no longer human. So now he quotes some passages of Scripture, which he thinks teach this about Jesus, that he's undergone this change from human to divine. first one is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 45, again, an ASB translation, very literal translation. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, comma, earthy. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy one, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly one, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And our friend Corey comments, verse 45, at the beginning, tells us that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, became, quote, a life-giving spirit. Certainly, a change occurred that would identify Jesus as a life-giving spirit, no longer human. Corey also writes that verse 45, quote, plainly states that we will bear the image of the heavenly. We are reminded that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so, In reply, one might think on the face of it that being a life-giving spirit rules out being a man, and one might think that no longer having or being composed of flesh and blood implies not being human. But notice that Paul proceeds to call Jesus the second man. That's in verse 47. Again, that makes best sense if he thinks that Jesus is still a man and he does it again by implication in verse 49. So, most translators are not so woodenly literal as the NASB, and they add some words. So, in verse 49, for instance, in the still pretty literal English Standard Version, it says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right, I think that is Paul's thought. Again, in verse 45, by calling Jesus the last Adam, I think he is again calling him a man. The first Adam is a man, seemingly so is the last Adam. Further, our friend Corey did not quote us the previous verse, verse 44. In the NASB, it says, and it's talking about human death, it says, it is sown, right, put into the soil, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, Paul writes. I like how the revised English translators render this in their excellent uh, Unitarian translation. They write, It is sown a soul body, it is raised a spiritual body. Since there is a soul body, there is also a spiritual one. So Paul is teaching here that someone who is resurrected does have a body, but it is a different kind of body. Let's read through the whole passage in the REV translation in order to get the whole flow of his argument. So I'll start in verse 35, and I'll read you the passage that includes what Corey quoted. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You senseless one, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body that will be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as it pleased him, and to each of the seeds he gives a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of humans, and another flesh of animals, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, right? And star there, he means any kind of heavenly body. So the sun and moon can be called stars in that sense. Anyway, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power it is sown a soul body it is raised a spiritual body since there is a soul body there is also a spiritual one so also it is written the first man adam became a living soul the last adam has become a life-giving spirit but the spiritual is not first on the contrary the soul body is after that is the spiritual the first man is of the earth made of dust the second man is of heaven. Like the first one made of dust, so too are those who are of the dust. And like the heavenly man, so too will be the heavenly ones. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. And I say this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood is not able to inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Look, I tell you a sacred secret— we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, when this corruptible puts on incorruptibility and this mortal puts on immortality, then the word that has been written will be brought to pass Death has been swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin comes from the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the main point here that Paul is making is that resurrected bodies are qualitatively different, that they're composed somehow of different stuff, so that they're not, quote, flesh and blood. In particular, they are incorruptible or immortal. I take it not subject to processes of aging, disease, and death like the bodies we have now. So not being flesh and blood doesn't imply not being human, but only not being mortal or corruptible. Again, looking at the whole passage It is clear that Jesus being a life-giving spirit doesn't imply not having a body, and so it seems consistent with still being a human being. Now, one might think that a human is, by definition, mortal, so that anyone who is immortal is thereby not a human being. There is a kernel of truth here, but we need to make a fine distinction. One might be immortal where this isn't essential, so... You're immortal now, but you're such that in principle you could become mortal, or maybe in the past you've been mortal. You have to distinguish that from being essentially immortal. So being immortal and such that in principle one could not fail to be immortal. Now all Christians think, and I have argued in podcast 145, Tis Mystery All the Immortal Dies, that the New Testament teaches that God is essentially immortal. But it seems that being human implies not being essentially immortal immortal if you're human you are such that you can fail to be immortal in fact this is how we all start out but it doesn't follow that humanity implies being mortal essentially rather all the human beings you and i have encountered so far assuming that you have not literally seen the risen jesus as some people have all the humans that you've seen so far have been mortal human beings But Paul is saying that at the resurrection we will be given incorruptible bodies and so we'll be made immortal. But of course, we won't then be essentially immortal. It's conceivable that God could demote you back to having a corruptible body again, which would make you revert to mortality. Now, why does Paul call Jesus a life-giving spirit if that's not his way of saying that Jesus lacks any sort of body and that he's not a human? Well, I think the REV commenters get it pretty much right, and I'll provide a link to their comment on this passage at the blog post at trinities.org for this episode. But basically, to be a living soul like Adam is to be alive with the sort of power by which you and I now live. It's to have the sort of life we have which involves being mortal. Paul is contrasting that with the kind of life Jesus has now. So he calls him a spirit because he has been made alive by this power from God that implies immortality. So he's using soul to refer to uh, the kind of normal natural powers by which we live now and spirit he's using to refer to this greater power from God that implies immortality. He's called life-giving because God has authorized Jesus to raise the dead and to give life also in the sense that his teaching enables us to have the life of the age to come. And I would add a point which is that a spirit in the Bible can mean just a normally unseen powerful being and Jesus since his resurrection and ascension certainly is that he's normally unseen he can occasionally be seen but he's normally not and he's certainly very powerful now and yet Paul seems to assume in this passage that Jesus is a man he's the second Adam he's the quote man from heaven He's been raised with this different and better kind of body, yes, but why should one think that that rules out being a man? One might say, well, by man, I just mean someone who's in a condition like you and me are in now. Okay, well, in that sense, Jesus is no longer a man. But I don't see that Paul is saying that, right? And no longer being a man in that sense is consistent with still having human nature, still having the kind essence of humanity. But again, Paul's main subject here isn't really the current metaphysical status of Christ, so that he's saying that Christ is no longer human, but now he's divine. Rather, Paul's subject is what's involved in resurrection. Along the way, yeah, he does seem to assume that Jesus is still human. Corey writes, verse 49 assures Christians that they would eventually bear the image of the heavenly. This will happen in the first resurrection when we put on immortality and actually meet Jesus in the air, as promised in 1 Thessalonians 4. Yeah, I agree with that. So, I guess his view is that resurrected believers, too, will cease to be human at the point of resurrection, but I don't see that clearly taught anywhere in the New Testament, nor do I see it as implied or assumed in any text there. Again, if humanity is an essence, it's what makes us be in the natural kind human being, then just by definition, we can't lose that and still exist. But again, I think our friend Corey is thinking of humanity as just a non-essential status that someone might gain or lose, and he's thinking of divinity in the same way. Mm, Which is kind of odd, because usually when we think about divinity, we're talking about God, and I don't think we should think that his divine status could be gained or lost at all in any way. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another alleged proof text that is supposed to show that Jesus is divine, but is no longer human. Friend Corey writes, The extent of our change in the first resurrection is explained in 2 Peter 1.4, uh, and he's quoting here from some interlinear version. It says, By means of which he has freely given to us his precious and splendid promises, so that through them you may escape the corruption that is in the world, caused by sinful desire, and become partakers of the divine nature. So, this says that believers will be made partakers in the divine nature, which presumably involves ceasing to be mortal. But why think that that implies no longer being human? As we've just seen, Paul seems to assume that being human is compatible with being made immortal by being given an incorruptible body. Presumably, being a partaker in the divine nature implies being made similar to God in certain respects. But it can't mean being like God in every way or by having the divine essence, right? It can't be that we're omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, necessarily existing, that we exist a se, that we're immune from temptation. It can't be all that, right? It has to be some much lesser likeness to God that's being meant there. Again, if Adam and Eve are to be understood literally, then in the storyline there, Adam and Eve at first are immortal. And yet, they are human beings. They're in that natural kind, right? They go from being immortal to being mortal as a result of sin. Again, if that's to be taken literally, that shows an assumption that being human is compatible with being immortal. Our friend Corey writes, if Christians have the hope of becoming partakers of the divine nature, then certainly Jesus Christ must possess the divine nature, If Jesus now has a divine nature, it stands to reason that he could no longer have human nature. I mean, I think I agree with his first sentence. Jesus' resurrection and immortality show the blessings that are promised to us and are evidence of those future coming blessings. But I'm not sure why he thinks that having divine nature in the sense at play in that passage implies no longer being human. Now, if we're talking about essences... I think i've got some good arguments there is a lot to work with there for instance i think the essence of divinity implies not being a creature and i think the essence humanity implies being a creature and so therefore nothing could have the essence of divinity and the essence of humanity now if we just arbitrarily define divinity and humanity as just these statuses of lesser power versus greater power maybe by definition by becoming divine you're going to have too much power to count as human okay but again even in scripture but also just according to common sense humans are potentially immortal god i think is by his essence immortal humans are not by their essence immortal but they can become immortal if god allows them to be or makes them that way I think in saying that, if Jesus is divine in this sense of being immortal and being more powerful than ordinary humans, if he's saying, well, that obviously implies he's not human, our friend Corey, I think, is just ignoring the idea of human where that's an essence. It's a matter of being a certain natural kind. He appeals to another text, which is 1 John 3.2. He says, this reveals that we will be like Christ. John writes, Dear friends, at the present time we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we will be, but we do know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. My only comment about this text is that it's clearly consistent with both of our points of view, and so it's not going to decide the issue between us. Corey continues. I would also appeal to Hebrews 1.3, which tells of how perfectly Jesus reflects the Father's nature or hypostasis. No man could ever make this claim, but a highly exalted divine immortal being could. This is where it gets uncomfortable for many Unitarians who can't wrap their minds around the idea of Jesus being raised to a divine being, a God, But if we have the hope of the divine nature as promised in 2 Peter, and we also will be like Jesus, then he must be divine. There's no other logical conclusion. He simply can no longer be thought of as a man. Here, I think the distinction I mentioned at the end of the last episode matters tremendously, the distinction between being a deity and being a god. If by divinity you're talking about the property of being a god in the sense that Yahweh is a god, then he is necessarily unique. And no, nobody else could come to have that status because necessarily there is only one god. So if by being divine you mean being a god, sorry, there could only ever be one being with that status. And so no, Jesus couldn't be promoted to that, nor could you or I be promoted to that. Otherwise, there'd be many gods. When he's talking about divinity and being a god, clearly he means something like that status I called being a deity in my paper on Counting Gods, where a god in that sense is just someone like a self who has power that's greater than any normal human, and I think supernatural power as well, power that goes beyond that that could be bestowed by just having your matter arranged in a certain way. Okay. Could Jesus now count as a deity in that sense? Sure, but that's consistent with his having the essence of a human being, too. So then you wouldn't need to say that he ceases to be human. Would that make him a peer of Yahweh? Yahweh, too, is a deity because he is someone who has much greater power than any ordinary human, and it's supernatural power. But he's also a god, so he's necessarily unique. He's the unique source of all else that there is, and I accept the tradition of thinking of God as necessarily a perfect being as well, so he has to have the greatest possible set of qualities that any being could have. I think it's a little patronizing to just say that Unitarians are uncomfortable here, they can't wrap their minds around this. I mean, I have a good reason for thinking that Jesus is still a human, which is that he has the essence humanity. And so, as long as he exists, he has to be in the natural kind. And if you say, but look how powerful he is now, then I will say, nothing about the essence humanity seems to require being as puny as me and you are right now. It doesn't seem to imply mortality. It doesn't imply being as limited in goodness and power and knowledge as we are now. We don't really know what the upper limits of humanity are except that surely the upper limits must fall short of god's level we shouldn't think it's possible for a human to have the kind of knowledge and power and goodness that god has we are limited beings after all But this isn't because I'm uncomfortable with things, you know, or scared somehow by the language. No, it's because that I think that humans fall into a certain natural kind and thereby have the essence humanity, which is the sort of thing that can't be lost unless you cease to exist. But of course, Jesus has never ceased to exist. He's existed ever since he came into existence. And, you know, you could say he's in kind of a divine status or condition now if you want, but you wouldn't be there talking about the kind of divinity or deity that God has. You'd be talking about something much less, similar to those Eastern Orthodox people who talk about saved humans as having been, quote, deified. Also, in that last part I read, I think our friend Corey is making a couple of assumptions One is that to be, in some sense, you know, some loose sense divine, one has to be made that way by one who's already in that sense divine, and that assumption is by no means self-evident, nor is it taught or assumed anywhere in Scripture. In fact, I think that assumption is false. So, just imagine that God empowers Moses to touch, say, Aaron with his staff, and if he does this, this will make Aaron become immortal. So God says, I want you to give everlasting life, I want you to give immortality to Aaron, just hit him with your stick, and Aaron will be thereby made immortal. So in a sense, Moses has made Aaron immortal by hitting him with the stick, and yet Moses is not himself immortal when he does that. So it's not clear that when we're talking about divinity in the sense of a mere status, that only one who is himself divine can make another one divine, That has been an assumption that you'll see in some Christian speculations about atonement, but I don't see how we can justify that claim. Again, Corey seems to assume that if Jesus well represents God, then surely Jesus must be divine and not human. Okay, but this is not said anywhere in Hebrews, contrary to his statement nor is this claim about representation self-evident. As best I can tell, it's neither said nor implied nor presupposed anywhere in scripture. On the contrary, as we've seen, it teaches that Jesus does uniquely well represent God to us, even though he was and still is a man. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That was a human talking. Corey and I will both agree. So, I guess a man can well represent God to the rest of us. On the face of it, that sort of representation is consistent with being human, and that also seems to be implied by various texts in the New Testament. So, going back to Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, the writer calls the risen and exalted Jesus, the reflection of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Is it obvious that no non-human could be that? I don't think it is. Remember in Genesis, the unfallen Adam is, quote, made in God's image and likeness, which is to say that he, in some way or ways, resembles God. Yet clearly he's also a human being, and in the narrative, he's one who still enjoys immortality. The fall of Adam and Eve is not portrayed as a fall from divinity to humanity, nor is the resurrection of believers portrayed as an upgrade from humanity to divinity. Hebrews 2 describes Jesus as our brother and as having, like us, been made of flesh and bone. So in two nine, the Revised English Version says, We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than angels, now having been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of the death, so that by the grace of God he tasted death in place of everyone. Okay, this Jesus that they're talking about, who has now been crowned with honor and glory, Notice that Jesus is the name of a man. That's the name he was given by Mary and Joseph. It's this one who has been crowned with glory and honor. The author gives no hint that Jesus is no longer a man because he's been raised and exalted in this way. Right? It's the same Jesus who died who is now exalted. And if you agree with that background assumption that to be a human is to have humanity... Okay, well, if he had that before, he has to have it now. He had it when he died, he must have it now when he's raised. Just by the concept of an essence. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some further texts from our friend Corey. So far, I have to say that the texts that have been offered seem pretty weak to me. From where I sit, it seems that our friend Corey has been giving us texts which, if you already held the position in question, I could see how you could read those texts as consistent with that, but the texts haven't even seemed to require the position in question. People with many, many theological positions can cite texts which could possibly be read as consistent with their thesis, but what we need are texts that logically require it, or at least which best make sense in light of the thesis. Now finally, I think we get down to a text which, on the face of it, I think does kind of sound like what Corey is talking about, and that is Galatians 1.1. And he quotes it here from some very literal interlinear edition. He writes, Lastly, I'd like to mention Galatians one one. I must give credit here for the deeper meaning of the scripture was pointed out to me by another brother. It says, From Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Before going on, let's hear the verse again in a somewhat less literal version, the Revised English version, it says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from any group of people, nor through any person, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him out from among the dead. And we should also notice that down in verses 11 and 12 of that same chapter, Paul says something similar that might be relevant here to understanding his meaning. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the good news that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from any person, nor was I taught it, but I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now this is, I think, by far the most plausible of the proof texts that our friend Corey offers. I can see how, if you're looking for support for your thesis that Jesus is no longer a man, you can look at this and think that Paul is implying that Jesus is not a man. That he's no longer one. Notice, however, that Jesus' current status is not exactly his subject matter. He's not directly teaching about the current metaphysical status of Jesus here and addressing whether or not he's a man. Rather, the subject at hand is Paul's apostleship, or the source of his authority. Paul is asserting that his commission comes from God through Jesus and not through, he says, any man. But does he mean any mere man here, as opposed to Jesus? Or does he strictly mean any man at all, even Jesus, which implies that Jesus is not currently a man? Notice again that Paul's subject is his own authority, not the status of Jesus. So we can't say here that Paul is teaching, not explicitly, but by implication that Jesus is not a man. The most we can say, I mean if we take Corey's position, is that Paul here assumes that Jesus is not a man. But is that right? Does the passage really show that Paul is assuming that? Well, as they say, context is king. What does Paul say in the rest of the book? At the end of this chapter, Paul writes, But when God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me so that I could proclaim the good news about Him among the Gentiles, immediately I did not consult with flesh and blood, Neither did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Flesh and blood. Okay. We've seen in our discussion so far that for Paul, this is a way to refer to ordinary, mortal humans like you or me, or like the pre-resurrection apostles. So Paul mentions seeing Peter and James in what follows. Now, I guess I take the view that this is really the key to the passage. We have to ask ourselves when we see verse 1 of chapter 1 in Galatians, is Paul really assuming that Jesus is not a man? But of course, his point isn't about Jesus. It's about the origin of Paul's commission, and he's saying that it's not of merely human origin. Ultimately, it comes from God. And I think he clarifies what he's thinking here when he denies in verse 1 that his apostleship came to him through a man. When he says in verse 16 that he did not consult with flesh and blood, that is to say, with any non resurrected people. So I think it's overreading the passage to think that he's asserting or implying or even assuming that Jesus is not a man. Corey comments It's very noteworthy here that Paul explicitly states that his ordination as an apostle was not from men nor through a man. Yet we know he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was the risen Christ that he met. The risen Christ was no longer a man, and that's why Paul mentions Jesus Christ after he tells us that he did not receive his apostleship by or through a man, but by Jesus Christ. One can only come to one conclusion from this. Well, I'll have to disagree here. I really don't think that we're driven to that conclusion. It's at least as plausible a reading, and I think it fits better with the rest of the Bible, that Paul is speaking loosely at the start of this chapter when he says that his apostleship is neither by human commission nor from or through human authorities, and that he makes his meaning a little bit more clear as the passage goes on. And again, it's not a teaching about Jesus, it's an assertion of the divine origin of Paul's commission as an apostle. But now if our friend Corey was right, one would hope that something else in the context of this book would support his reading. So let us ask, does Paul teach anywhere in this book that Jesus transitioned from being human to being in some sense divine and so no longer human? I don't think so. In chapter 3, verse 16, he calls Christ the seed of Abraham, meaning that he was a descendant of Abraham, but of course that's consistent with either view. In a few places in the book, Paul calls Christ the Son of God, but of course, he was called that even before his resurrection and exaltation, so that title is consistent with his being a man now, or not. So, for example, in 4.4, Paul writes, When the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born from a woman born under the law. And in chapter 3, verse 26, he writes, For you are all sons of God through trust in Christ Jesus. other words, believers are now sons and daughters of God, though of course we are all now human. Certainly to be a son of God or a daughter of God in this broader sense is compatible with being human. And of course, Jesus was called the Son of God before his resurrection and exaltation, so clearly that title, being the Son of God, is consistent with being a human. So that he's called that now, God's Son, doesn't imply divinity and not humanity. In 4.14, Paul writes, You did not treat me with contempt or disdain, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. Most translators think that Paul's meaning here is that the people received Paul as if he were an angel, or as if he were Christ himself. Of course, literally, Paul is not an angel, nor is he Christ himself. In other words, they gave him the same kind of respect and hospitality that they would have given to christ or to a visiting angel but if paul here is implying that he is an angel we would think he means that just in the sense of being a messenger sent from god as also was jesus not that he's an angel and so not a human anyway i don't see that paul clearly teaches anywhere in this book that jesus is no longer a man if he did that would confirm this reading of the passage in chapter one that allegedly paul is assuming that jesus is no longer human as best i can tell All that Paul is assuming is that Jesus is not an ordinary man, that he's not mere flesh and blood nowadays, but that's consistent with still being human. In Paul's view, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus now has an immortal body that is not like our current bodies subject to death. So in Paul's terminology, Christ is no longer, quote, flesh and blood. Now, if Paul didn't have any concept of human essence or divine essence, uh, and he was only stuck using the terms human and divine, as people do in mythologies where a being can go from human to divine and back to human again, and that all makes sense in that sense if to be human is defined as being of a puny status and being divine is having much greater status then yeah by definition in that sense if jesus is now exalted and mighty then he's not human but the thing is i don't see why paul would lack this concept that is the concept of humanity as a natural kind For one thing, there have been hundreds of years here of influence from Greek philosophies like Platonism, Aristotelianism, and Stoicism, all of which assume that there is such a thing as human nature. Of course, they disagree about what are the component properties of it. Again, he would have, as a reader of Genesis, had a concept of humanity such that it's consistent with starting off being immortal and then being mortal because of one's sin, and seemingly being made mortal again. That's how he talks, right? So Paul never insists anywhere that you stop calling the risen and exalted Jesus a man. I don't see where he does that. Nor does Paul anywhere suggest that we should not call resurrected human beings humans, men, women, people. It would make sense if he only had the concept of a human as like sharing the kind of puny status that we have now. But I don't see why we should assume that. Surely he could understand that there is something that it is to be God. This implies having mighty power and knowledge and perfect goodness. Okay, well, if he can think that, then he can understand the concept of the divine essence. Surely he can understand that things fall into certain natural kinds. In fact, that kind of comes up in his discussion that there are different kinds of flesh. Presumably he thinks there are different kinds of flesh, that is to say, bodies, for different natural kinds. But one of those natural kinds is human. But then he can understand the concept of humanity, understood as the essence, humanity. Of course, as we heard, it would seem that for Paul, being human is compatible with being flesh and blood, but it's also compatible with having an incorruptible body. At least, that's how most people understand Paul. So you have to take all this into account when you look at a passage like Galatians 1.1 where Paul asserts that his apostleship or his commission doesn't come from or through any mere person, but rather through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Ultimately, his commission comes from God, and it is through Jesus, who's a man. Not a mere man, though, not a flesh-and-blood man. But remember, Paul doesn't think that a human is by definition a flesh-and-blood human That is to say, he doesn't think a human is by definition mortal and limited in the ways that you and I are currently limited. Nor should he. Just because a certain limitation is common among all the members of a certain natural kind, we can conclude from that that it's demanded by the essence that members of that kind share. It's pretty hard to tell in many cases whether or not a certain upgrade is consistent with a certain essence. Imagine there was such a thing as smart pills that would raise a thing's IQ, and so I sneak a smart pill into your dog's chow, and now, you know, he understands twice as many words as before, and you're like, wow, this is a really excellent dog. I mean, he could understand all these commands. I mean, still be a dog, right? Even if he's the smartest dog in the world. If we now bred a bunch of dogs that were super-duper smart, smarter than any poodle, or German Shepherd, or Golden Retriever, I mean, they'd still be dogs, we think. So what are the upper limits of intelligence after which a thing stops being a dog? I don't know. But it's like that with human nature. We think there have got to be some limits to how great a human can be, but there isn't really any reason to think that humans have to be the kind of, you know, fragile and super limited and very temporary sorts of critters that you and I are. In fact, that's the hope of the resurrection, that being human We can nonetheless be made immortal through faith in God, through Jesus. So I admit that on the face of it, Galatians 1 1 by itself seems to favor Corey's view. I don't think it strictly requires it. And I think you have to consider it in the broader context of everything else that Paul has written and in the broader context of all scripture. And indeed, in the context of our, I think, reasonably believing, if not knowing, that there are natural kinds. And so, that there are essences, including the one that you and I have, which is humanity. Having that essence means that we can't undergo just any change whatsoever, but it doesn't seem to demand the kind of limits that we have now. To wrap up, Corey writes, There are many other scriptures that reveal this truth if you are interested. I would be happy to share them with you. Well, I'd be interested in hearing the other alleged supports for this doctrine. I think now that I've explained my thinking, which is really the thinking of most Christian theology about humanity and divinity, that it might be a little bit harder than you think to prove this. Because again, I don't see why Paul or the other authors of scripture should be thought to only have the concept of human as a being of like status, like power, and so on as you and I. And I don't think there's reason to agree that the only concept they have of divine is, you know, something with much greater power. I do agree that the risen and exalted Jesus has been given a great upgrade of glory and power and authority. And for instance, Paul is quite explicit that now he's immortal. But again, those are consistent with his still being a man. If you don't want to call him a man anymore because he doesn't have any longer the limits that you and I have, I don't want to dispute just about words, but I think the sense of humanity that I'm talking about, where it refers to a natural kind and the essence associated with it, I think that's the more important sense. So sure, give me some more scriptures that supposedly support this, and again, as I mentioned in part one, maybe at some later time I'll interact with the Jehovah's Witnesses materials on this subject, because... They too have adopted this type of position, and for all I know, our friend Corey may have got it from them, or maybe some of the people he's interacting have got it from them. I'm not suggesting it's false just because it comes from them, but I am saying that it's a very unusual position in the history of all Christian theologies, and I think there are good reasons for why it's unusual, because that Jesus is now divine and not human is not plausible and doesn't seem to be supported by the texts overall, and read in light of things that we and the authors of those texts know. And that claim seems to ignore the more important senses of those words, divinity and humanity, that Christian theology has done so much to explore. When the Trinities podcast returns, some concluding thoughts. Before we go, I want to review some rough definitions of the key terms that I've discussed in this and in the last episode and also mention some clear implications of those terms. The first two terms are deity and god, lowercase g, and this is how I suggest using the terms in my paper called On Counting Gods. And for the full motivation for using these terms in this way, you'll have to see the paper. It has to do with atheism and polytheism and not just with monotheism but as i use the term a deity is a very powerful self whose powers exceed those of the natural realm a god is a necessarily unique deity who is the ultimate source of everything else there is so by these definitions any god is also a deity But also, by these definitions, only one deity can be a god. In the Bible, in my view, it's taught everywhere that there is a god, and this god is by definition unique. In the Old Testament, he's called Yahweh, in the New Testament, he's called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As to deities where none of them is a god, angels would count, and possibly other beings. Next, let's talk about the terms divine status and human status, and that is what I mean in these episodes by divinity and humanity not understood as essences. Rather, they're just non-essential conditions that something could be in. So, divine status would mean something like being an immortal being who enjoys much greater powers than the humans we see around us now, And then human status would be having the sorts of limitations we see in the humans alive now, other than Christ. Or, if you like, we could just give kind of a pseudo-definition of divine status as whatever condition it is which is now enjoyed by the exalted Jesus and which will be enjoyed by resurrected believers in the future. You know, maybe some people, when they're talking about divinity Or divine status, they don't really mean anything more specific than that. Okay. So, by those definitions, Jesus nowadays, having been raised and exalted, according to the New Testament, would not have human status any longer, but would have divine status. And of course, by definition, nothing could have both. Whatever has human status doesn't have divine status. Whatever has divine status doesn't have human status. And as I mentioned before, mythologies in which a being could become a god or be demoted down to being a human like you or I, myths like that depend for their coherence on that they're only talking about divine status and human status. But those are not the most important senses of the terms divine and human. We have a concept of a human as a natural kind of thing. And so, too, we think that there is such a thing as being a god. So call that having divine essence versus having human essence. So divine essence would be the property or properties in virtue of which their owner is a god. Human essence would be the property or properties in virtue of which their owner is a human being. Now because these are by definition kind essences, nothing can gain or lose them without coming into existence or going out of existence. And I think it should be uncontroversial that because of the properties that are involved in divine essence, in principle, nothing could either gain or lose divine essence, because divine essence involves eternity, nor could, in principle, anything have divine essence because of anything else, because divine essence includes uncreatedness and aseity to get a little bit more controversial because of the properties involved in divine essence and those involved in human essence. And for a lot more about these various clashing properties, you can see podcasts 343 and 344 or my debate with Chris Date, episodes 263 and 264. Because of those clashing properties that are involved in divinity and humanity, understood as essences, it follows that if anyone has divine essence, then they lack human essence, and if anyone has human essence, then they lack divine essence. In this, they're like the geometrical properties of being a circle and a square. If any figure is a square, it's not a circle. If any figure is a circle, it's not a square, because of the incompatibility of the definitions. So, the more important sense of humanity is being a member of the natural kind human being, which involves having human essence. Those are just whatever properties put you in that category. And the more important sense of divinity is where that refers to divine nature. This is much discussed in Christian theology through Christian history. So, in those senses of the terms human and divine, It's just obviously impossible that anything should go from being human to being divine. And this for multiple reasons. First of all, things can't change their natural kinds, just in principle, it seems. Second of all, nothing can become divine. And if you just say, well, hey, he's so different now how can you think he belongs to the same kind as before then i think you need to take care about what you think is possible and impossible for a human being to do or be just because something is normally seen in all the members of a species that we've observed it doesn't follow that in principle any other member of that species now or in the future will have to be that same way now these are philosophical specifically metaphysical terms Kind essence and natural kind. Authors of scripture don't employ very philosophical vocabulary. But do they have a concept of natural kinds? I think they do. They think God created all the different kinds of things, that things naturally fall into the categories in which God made them. One of those is humanity. Then again, Yahweh is understood as a deity, but as a necessarily unique one. He's unique in kind. So I do think they have a concept of divinity. When they say there's only one God, they're saying there's only one thing of that kind in reality. So I hope that little review makes things a little bit more clear. I know I probably could have been a lot more clear in how I presented all of this, but I do commend these ways of thinking about all of this to you. I think it helps us keep straight in our minds what monotheism involves, why the Bible isn't anywhere polytheistic, contrary to some scholars. And honestly, I do think it helps us get clear about what Paul is and isn't teaching about the risen Jesus and about the futures of his followers. So, Corey, let's continue the conversation in some way. Thanks for listening. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Lost Track by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download the entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.